What wonderful words we just sang as we prepare our hearts to study the Word of God together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them to John chapter 12 this morning as we approach Easter in the coming weeks. I want to take a few weeks of our time and reflect upon the final days of the life of Jesus Christ on this earth. And uh, so this morning I want us to examine the how we are to worship Him, how worship looks in the life of those who love Him, the one who is in fact the resurrection and the life. That's what the Scriptures declare, and therefore that is who we are worshiping. And so I I want us to find ourselves in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, I... I like things, some things about holidays and other things I don't like about holidays as a pastor. And one of those is that sometimes holidays come. You go, wait a minute, I thought you said you liked them. Yeah, they, that, that, that happens. And oftentimes we are teaching through texts of Scripture that, that aren't necessarily about that holiday. And so sometimes I have to wrestle with, do I, do I set all that aside and jump into something that deals with something that revolves around the holiday that we are in, i.e like Easter or Christmas, or do I just continue in that text? And as, of course, this morning you can tell, we are going to John chapter 12, and for the next few weeks, actually, we'll be in and around John's gospel as we think about Easter, which kind of sets us aside in the gospel of Luke. It's like walking down a sidewalk and tripping and then not realizing you skipped three or four sections of that place. And so when we get back to Luke, we got to kind of figure out where we were. But it'll be a joy for us to do that. But this morning I want to spend time in John chapter 12, and I want to read for us verses 1 through 11. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. John tells us, Jesus therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made a supper there, and Martha was serving Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And Jesus therefore said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And the great multitude therefore of the Jews learned that he was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. You bow with me for a word of prayer as we just ask the Lord to guide our time. Father, we once again, humbly come before you, dependent upon you for every thought and every understanding of what your word 
teach us. We're grateful that you have given it to us and that we can know your heart on these issues. We're thankful for this little scenario that we get to look into and to understand the idea and the understanding of what worship looks like. Lord, help us to to have that in our heart this morning as we think about even in a little while coming to the communion table, the the way in which you have given yourself for us. Lord, may that be on our minds, on our hearts, as a true exercise of dependent worship upon you for all that you've accomplished. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may not know this, or uh, many of you probably do, uh, in my own personal life, I, I truly believe God has been overwhelmingly gracious to me. One of the ways, as I think about my own life and my own growing years, is that I've seen His graciousness in the fact that I had the privilege of growing up in a home where Jesus Christ was proclaimed. My father was saved when I was five years old, and so most of my growing years and my years in which I remember life was under the teaching and the example and tutelage of the Word of God. And along with that privilege, I've also had the opportunity to be involved with various churches throughout my growing up years. We we had times when I was a teenager where we moved uh, several different times uh, from my younger years into my teens. So I, I've seen firsthand the living out of the modern day Christianity over the 50 years that I've been involved in my memory in churches in the Western culture. And the longer that I walk with the Lord and the more I learn of who God is, and and all that God requires of us who profess to know Him, the more I become disturbed as I look at the landscape, and I've shared some of this in the past, what appears to be a sliding trend that's happening in what is described by the terminology of Christianity in our world. Christianity, at least as it is explained and lived by many in our world today, is not the Christianity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christianity by terminology, but it is not Christianity by reality. Popular Christianity of our day is no longer exclusive. In fact, it has become a very inclusive reality. Even though the Scriptures tell us that we will be known by the fruit that we bear in our lives, that even as in our prayer this morning, we, the world knows us by our love for one another, that we are disciples. It seems today, in many places within evangelicalism, that just the words, I am a Christian, are enough for acceptance as true Christianity. And as long as I just say those words, as long as I just attach myself in some kind of proximity to what the world defines as Christian things, 
then I'm accepted as a Christian rather than the reality of some outward spiritual fruit in my life. So in our day, you can just claim to know Christ. You can attach yourself to however Christianity is defined, and you can morph your life into that kind of outworking, if you will, rather than have fruit in your life. That, that's good enough. You don't have to do anything else. You're accepted as a true follower of Christ if that's all you are, is someone who says, I'm a Christian. And therefore, we must ask, whatever happened to living as light in a dark world? Whatever happened to the Bible declaring to us that we are to be lights in a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we as true Christians appear as lights in the world, as it says in Philippians, holding fast the word of life. Whatever happened to the seriousness of our duty to worship Christ simply because He is worthy of worship. Whatever happened to that in our life, and we've devalued it to where now anything, any vestige of worship must now feed me something, must give me something, must entertain me about something, must do something for me, or I don't like it. Whatever happened to just the seriousness of worshiping Christ because Christ is returning at any moment? Whereby we worship even at a personal cost to ourselves simply for following Christ rather than simply seeking to fit Christ into our own convenient life to find some place, some hole in our schedule so that Christ can fit into that little slot and thereby we can appease the conscience that is ringing so loudly because we claim that we are Christians. I wonder, does it not carry significant weight to the professing Christian ear that when God says we are to be in the world but not of the world, that we are therefore then not of the world? Does that have any weight anymore? When we open the Word of God and we read those kinds of words and we, we read words that say in similar vein that we are to not be like the world, does it have any weight upon the professing Christian anymore that we are not to be of the world? I wonder, are the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 spiritually weightless? For the Apostle Paul says, I urge you therefore by the mercies of God to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That is simply to say that because God has been so merciful to us who profess to know Him, because God has offered us a way through Jesus Christ to be reconciled to Him in order that we might do exactly what we have been created to do. What is that? Worship Him from a pure heart. Does that have no weight upon us? Is that no longer urgent? As Paul said, I urge you.
In other words, because of our actual guiltlessness before God the Father, through trusting in the righteousness of Christ, we are thereby freed up to worship God as we ought to. So are we striving anymore to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God? And Paul speaks that in Romans 12. He means our whole self. He doesn't just mean one little aspect. And Paul goes on to say, this is your reasonable service of worship. This is what's reasonable. Because all that God has accomplished for you, because of all that God has done for you as a Christian, this is therefore then the reasonable outworking of your faith. You see, I believe what's happening in evangelicalism at large today is that the reason so many who profess to know Christ do not live in any way as if Christ has affected their life is either because they do not know Christ at all, even though they have attached themselves to some kind of Christian language, or they do not understand what salvation has accomplished for them in the greatest sense of it. So either because of self-imposed ignorance, or because of plain indifference, many who profess Christ are not true worshipers of Christ, as God intended, as God has commanded. And I believe the evangelical world is full of them. It's full of what I call and have said before, proximity Christians, those who get close to Christianity and thereby convince themselves that they're good Christian people because they attend a church or because they go to some religious activity but yet they truly do not know Christ at all and they have no real desire to worship God as He intended. And what we need in evangelicalism in our day is a fresh look at what true worship is and what true worship isn't. And we get a glimpse of that, I believe, here in John chapter 12. In light of the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You say, Pastor, this text doesn't talk about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. You're right, it does not. But chapter 11 of John certainly does. In John chapter 11, Jesus had spent his time with a man who was sick. A man named Lazarus had been sick. He was on his deathbed. And Jesus was summoned by his sisters to come and to see him. In fact, they said to him in verse 3, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. There was a relationship tied with Jesus between Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they were letting Jesus know that his friend was deathly ill. Of course, Jesus answers them, When he heard of it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And then, verses 5 and following, say these incredible words. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when, therefore, he heard that he was sick, Lazarus was sick, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus' friend is sick. He's sick unto death. He's been told about the sickness. And the text tells us that Jesus loved them. He loved them very much. And he had heard the news, and so he delays his going. He delays his going. Doesn't seem like love to us when we look at it, and yet it's the greatest of love because Jesus knows the time frame and he knows that God is going to glorify him. And of course, we know what happens. Jesus gets there. Martha is rather shocked and upset about the fact that he wasn't there sooner because she knows he might have been able to do something. At least that's what she thinks in her mind at the time. And they tell Jesus, Lazarus is dead, verse 14. Lazarus is dead. Jesus says, yes, he's dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not here so that you may believe. I want you to believe. I'm glad. I delayed for a reason. I delayed the reality because you need to believe who I am. You need to have a real genuine faith in who I am. So let's go to him. Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus came, found the tomb. He'd already been there four days. Lazarus died four days earlier. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come over there. They were mourning. They were helping to mourn. When Martha heard that Jesus was there, she went out to meet him. Mary's in the house. And Martha begins to have a conversation with Jesus. Jesus says to her, Martha, listen, your, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day, verse 24. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The implication is, listen, no one's going to rise on the last day unless they're intimately attached to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection doesn't happen without me. I'm the one who does it. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe it? You see, Martha, do you, do you really believe who I am? Martha says, yes, Lord, I, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So when she said that, she went away, called Mary, her sister, said, the teacher's here, he's calling for you. And of course, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's the background for chapter 12. That's the background for chapter 12. And so, our outline for this morning is very simple. It's very simple for these 11 verses that we're going to look at. One is the heart of true worship, and two is the heart of false worship. This is what we're talking about. This is what we are looking at. Those who... Believe upon Jesus. What does it look like in their life? 
That's all I want us to see this morning. And I want us to evaluate where we are in our own Christian lives in light of that. How do we know we're true worshipers of Jesus Christ? I don't want any of us to think that when we talk about worship, when we say worship, we're only talking about some kind of meeting like we are here this morning in the church service. Right? We have to worship, as Paul said, Romans 12, with our entire lives. We offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. So the undeniable reality that we have before us is that very fact that Jesus Christ is actually the resurrection and the life. He is the who and He is the why resurrection happens. There is no other way. No one can genuinely refute that Jesus is, in fact, what He said He is in chapter 11. He is the resurrection and the life. You cannot refute that with any kind of logical refutation, number one, because Lazarus, the one who was in the grave for four days, is now breathing the air outside of the grave. Somebody did that, and it was Jesus who was there who did that. So Lazarus is a proof that Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus is on the scene. Right? Verse 54, they don't like him. In fact, many wanted to kill him, verse 53 of chapter 11. And so Jesus, therefore, is no longer walking publicly among the Jews. He goes away to the country in the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Well, all of that time that Jesus was away, Lazarus is around. Lazarus is up and around. He's interacting with people, and they see him. And the other proof that Jesus is the resurrection, is alive, is the by, is by way of the fact that they want to kill Lazarus again. So someone would say, well, I'm not so sure you're right. Well, really, they, they want to kill Lazarus. Verse 10 of chapter 12, the chief priest took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. So it's an undeniable fact that Lazarus, while having been dead, is now alive. So the event of Lazarus' resurrection is obviously the reality and proof that Jesus is the one who He said He is. So the ultimate drive of this entire passage is that Jesus is what He said He is in chapter 11, verse 25. He is the resurrection and the life, and we must believe it. So that's, that's what we need to have in our minds as we approach then chapter 12. This heart through worship that flows out of a belief in who Jesus is. So let's begin to look at this then, the heart of true worship. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, you notice John continues to drive that point home over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus is the one who did this. 
And so they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. And stop right there. Martha was serving. Seems very mundane. It's not a church service that's taking place. This isn't a gathering of the saints. It's the body of Christ, if you will, in a place where worship was to take place on a given day. But there is a great deal of worship taking place, and it is because of belief in the reality that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I said it already, right? Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't something that we might see today. This isn't somebody who drops uh, outside or inside who, who has a heart issue and someone comes along and gives them cardiopulmonary resuscitation. No, this was Christ. This was Jesus going to the local cemetery and calling out the name of the one who had been written on the headstone there, and the ground starts to shake, and the person comes out alive. They begin to walk on the earth. It's no wonder that the resurrection of Lazarus made unbelieving leaders of that day, the Pharisees, extremely worried about their popularity. They were worried. The chief priests were worried because on account of Him, it says in verse 11, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus was a problem for their continued popularity. And the chief priests knew that. That's why they began to plot against Lazarus, and already they had a plot against Christ, verse 53 of chapter 11. So their problem was going to continue if they didn't get rid of Lazarus and Jesus. And so from that day, they began to to orchestrate this plan that they might kill them. It just simply tells us that if the Pharisees had a top ten list of people they wanted to get rid of, Jesus and Lazarus were on the top. And so John tells us in chapter 12 that it's now six days before the Passover, before the time when Jesus was going to offer Himself as a sacrifice. And Jesus comes back to Bethany, and Martha and Lazarus and Mary are there. When verse 2 says, so they made Him supper there, that's who it's talking about. He's he's he's, He's over with them. They're making Him dinner. And they're having a gathering of people because Jesus has come. Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 14 verse 3 tells us this is the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper. Matthew tells us that his disciples are with him. So there's at least 17 people there in the home for this dinner. John tells us first that Martha was serving Martha was serving. That's the first characteristic that we see in this passage that describes the heart of true worship. The heart of someone who truly believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. True worship is seen in willing service. Willing service. Martha is serving. She's willingly serving. Notice she is serving others and she is doing so. She's 
doing it, and thereby in doing it, she is worshiping Jesus Christ, the one in whom she now believes. We go over to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. Luke chapter 10. You knew I wouldn't be able to stay out of Luke today. Luke chapter 10. Martha's not so happy to serve. She is now serving without grumbling and without complaining because she believes who Jesus Christ is. But she wasn't doing that before. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, they were traveling along and entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. This is the same Martha. She received him in. Right? It was a hospitable thing to do. She received him into her home and she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the word of the Lord, sitting at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. And of course, Lord answers her, Martha, you're worried, you're bothered about so many things. Only a few things that are necessary. Really, only one. Mary's chosen the good one. She's chosen the good part. I'm not going to take that away from her. See, Mary or Martha had an attitude before that served, but was unwilling, really. It was an unwilling service. She served, but not out of devotion or love for Christ. She served merely out of duty. It was duty. In fact, that's what she always did previously. She served out of duty. She was angry when others wouldn't help her in that service. She's so incensed in Luke 10 that she even rebukes the teacher. She comes and asks him a question, but it isn't just a simple, hey, you know, I was thinking about this. No, she says, listen, why aren't you doing something about it? She rebukes Jesus. But you notice in John chapter 12, this is not the same Martha. It's the same person, but it's not the same heart. Martha's heart is different. Martha's heart has been changed. She has encountered Christ. She, she encountered Him before He had, he had come to her house. He, but now... She, her encounter is different. Now he has raised her brother from the dead and she believes who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. Her life has been changed. She understood that she could do what God has equipped her to do from a right heart. And so she worships. She understood what she had been forgiven of. She understood that now she could love Christ much just as He has loved her much. And that love showed as she served. She served others without complaint, without bickering, without rebuke. Martha understood that the worship of Christ is seen in her service, not as a duty, but because of who Christ is. 
She was serving simply because of Christ, what Christ had done. Her preparing of a meal with the right heart and attitude was genuine worship to God. You see, I think that's important for us to recognize when we think about our Christian lives. Engaging in spiritual service is worship. Engaging in spiritual service is worship if our heart before God is in the right place. Because when we serve like that, we're acknowledging to God that you have gifted me in ways that that I can be used before you. And, And not only in the spiritual realm, it's not some mystical spiritual thing, but you have given me physical gifts that I can use. And my heart attitude is just to serve and honor and and worship you through that before even your people, and you're the one who receives all the glory. Paul told the Corinthian brothers, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 doesn't matter what you do, whether you eat or drink, even down to the mundane issues of life, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That means, beloved, that God is to be reflected in everything we do. So whether we're like Martha, whether we're fixing a meal for someone, serving someone in that way, or whether we're caring for some other detail of someone's life, whether we're helping someone with some kind of task that has been brought upon their life, or whether we are one who formally teaches people the Word of God, whether it be in a Sunday school class or in a Sunday Uh, message like we're doing now, or whether it be individually, one-on-one discipleship, all of us have been given gifts according to the Spirit of God by means through which His Spirit we are to equip and edify the whole body and worship and glorify Christ when we use those gifts. Why? Because He's the resurrection and the life. So Martha understood Martha got it. She understood that the worship of God was the outflow of her life, and so she served in whatever way God had gifted her to serve. And that's the transcending point here. Loving service is always the characteristic of those who have had their hearts made new by Jesus Christ because they believe that He is the resurrection, and the life. So the heart of worship is seen through willing service. Secondly, the heart of worship is seen through fellowship, genuine fellowship. John says in verse 2, Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Martha's serving, Lazarus is reclining. True worshipers are continually in communion with Christ and desiring to be around those who were with Christ. Even though we do not know a whole lot about Lazarus, you can search the gospel writers and all we know is just what we know. He was the guy Jesus raised from the dead, but we don't know a whole lot more other than that. 
But we do know this about them, about him. He was in communion with Christ and loved to be with the followers of Christ. It is the neglect of, I think, that aspect of worship that surprises me most of all within greater evangelicalism. What is it? What is it in us as professing believers in our modern day? What is it that keeps us away from fellowship and worshiping together? What is it? Is it is it some reality in our life or some desire that we have within the world by way of our own pleasures whereby our schedule is so loaded with all kinds of other things that, that we no longer have time for God and His people? Is that what it is? What is it, what is it that motivates us to make no worship a habit of life? Why does it seem to be so difficult for Christians today to gather with one another to worship God through His Word. True disciples love to be together with God's people. This is the outworking of the Christian heart. This is what God has made us because Christians are like-minded people. We enjoy the spiritual refreshment that we gather from one another as ministry comes together. Not, not simply because Christians have a delight in an occasion. Sometimes we look forward to a certain occasion and we have a delight in the occasion itself. But that's not really what worship is. The heart of worship delights in the challenge and encouragement that comes from interacting on spiritual matters with others who understand spiritual matters. The iron sharpening iron mentality, the the privilege that that is when we are interacting with one another around the things of God. I think we have, in a great way, lost this in modern Christianity. Lazarus was reflecting a heart of worship through fellowship. I think it's rather ironic. He had been dead physically, and now he's alive again physically, and all he wants to do is be with Christ. He, He was already in the grave four days. Now he wants to be with Christ. He wants to be around those who are around Christ. I read this, and each time I read this, I think to myself, we're no different, right? All of us who, who actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, we're no different. We were dead. Now we are alive because of Christ, and therefore it is our great privilege, it is our great honor to worship God through fellowship. I was reading recently, one man said it this way, quote, it takes two to fellowship. One speaks, the other responds. We have fellowship with Christ when we get before Christ and we learn from His Word and He speaks to us. And we fellowship when we challenge each other through that same Word. Unquote. It's true. 
And so the heart of worship is seen here through Martha's serving and through Lazarus' fellowship. There's a third one here as well. A third example of the heart of worship, and that is in Mary. The heart of true worship is seen through sacrifice. Sacrifice. Verse 3, Mary therefore took the pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary takes perfume, pours it on Jesus' feet. What does that say about her sacrifice? Well, the first thing it says, it was extremely costly to Mary. This was not your ordinary perfume. It was of pure nard, it says. That's a plant from India. It was an imported perfume, very costly. Some historians have said it would cost upwards of $20,000 to have that amount of perfume of that kind. So where Mary got all of that, we do not know. But the fact was, it was her. She was now willing to expend it. Why? Because to Mary, none of the monetary sums and none of the having it was that important because none of it mattered in comparison to who Christ was. And of course, all of this was being used by God in His plan of redemption to show who Jesus Christ is in that He would redeem others, that He was going to die for others. She was symbolically in the hand of God being the one who showed that she was preparing Jesus for His burial Himself. So her most treasured possession was not something material in her own heart and mind. Her most treasured possession was her Savior, Jesus Christ. So Mary, perfume in some ways had been important. Right? She had a year's worth of it. Right? We only know that because... Judas says in verse 5, this perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. That would have been a year's worth of wages. So in some ways it was important, but it wasn't as important as Christ. And that's the nature of sacrifice, isn't it? Sacrifice implies paying a cost. That it costs you something. David, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24 said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing. So in order to sacrifice that which is of value, we have to let it go. We have to relinquish our hold upon it. And so for us as Christians, the more we walk with God in our Christian lives, I would certainly hope this is the case, that we realize how much we are holding on to things how tightly our hands are grasping to things. We have to ask ourselves, what is it I'm holding on to? What is it I value most? We only do and we only respond in ways to that which we value the most. For some of us, we value material goods. Whatever we have and however we can maintain it, so that none of it seems to fiddle itself away. We keep it at a certain level, and if it drops below that, we think we are well beyond what we ought to be. We don't want to have to give that up, and so we begin to panic. 
maybe we've budgeted God into our lifestyle rather than worship with Him with sacrifice. For others, who knows? What is of value may be our position. Some place in our job, what it is we are, how we view ourselves, or how others see us by way of our own reputation, or our own status. The relationship we have with other people and what they view to us. Maybe even our earthly family and our status there. And we view that in some way with some kind of earthly value. And we hold to it. Not going to sacrifice that for my relationship with God. So the question is, should we... The question isn't, should we have those things, right? God is the one who gives all gifts. He's the one who provides all those things. The question is, are we willing to sacrifice them because Christ is greater? Because Christ is a greater value. For most of us, time would be one of our greatest values. Things we value the most. That's why we schedule it so tightly. Are we willing to sacrifice time for Christ? Beloved, Mary is an example for all of us in this. An example of more than just what is sacrificed, but rather that the sacrifice tells us everything about how she valued Christ. The sacrifice had a huge value. It, it was expensive perfume. It was a year's worth of salary. I mean, it was, it was a lot of money. And yet she was willing to relinquish it on behalf of Jesus Christ. That tells us more about Christ than it does about the value of what she gave. Not only was Mary's sacrifice costly, but it was costly in a personal way. Notice John says in verse 3, she not only anointed his feet, but she wiped his feet with her hair. She wiped his feet with her hair. I think if we understand ancient culture at all, and maybe even our own culture here in the West, the hair of a woman is her glory. It's the identity. It's what we tie it to. We compliment one another based upon our hairstyles and who we are by way of our hair. But Mary, Mary here humbly bows and by way of her own action, her own personal cost in her own life says to Christ, not only can you have my possessions, Lord, but you can have me. And the most shocking part of this whole reality, this whole little transaction that's taking place, the most shocking part to us ought to be the fact that Christ doesn't stop her. This is another testimony to who He is. Why? Because the Old Testament commanded, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. And here's Christ not stopping Mary. Why? Because He's God. He's God. And He demands and rightfully demands and deserves our worship. And our worship is seen in how we serve. It's seen in how we fellowship. It is seen in how we are totally abandoned to God by self-sacrifice. 
John says, and, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Filled. That means every nook and cranny. It went everywhere. I love that. I love that. Especially when you think about worship. It was perfume. The smell goes everywhere. But the implicational lesson is what worship does. Worship affects everybody. Worship affects everybody. True worship is always a blessing to those who are around it. If if ours is a heart of worship to Christ, then others see Christ and they begin to think of Christ. If our service is a service to Christ, then others don't see us serving, they see Christ in us serving. If our, if our fellowship is fellowship with Christ and for Christ, then others see that in us. They see Christ in us. And they see Christ in us as we sacrifice. Not by saying, hey, look at how much you sacrificed, but by saying, listen, how valuable is Christ? It's all Christ. That's what true Christians do. True Christians truly worship. What do false Christians do? What do they do? They have no concept of what worship means. We get a a picture of that here in verses 4 through 6. Judas Iscariot. One of the disciples, one of those who walked with Christ, a proximity Christian, hanging out with the master, even hanging with the people who are with the master. He's intending, however, there's a picture of his heart to betray Christ. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people We get the little indication of why he said what he said. It wasn't because he was concerned about the poor. He didn't want to serve others. He didn't want to help others. He didn't want to worship God by dealing with the needs of other people. No, he was a thief. He had the money box, and he used to just take money from it for his own good. See, the implication in Judas's heart is Christ had forgotten about the poor. Here is God of all glory. Had Christ truly forgotten about the poor? Was Jesus Christ, the God of glory, being insensitive? Was the one who is the resurrection and the life not thinking of others more highly than himself? Absolutely not. Those who truly worship Christ will never forget the poor. They will never forget the needy. Why? Because that's the heart of Christ. That's not the heart of Judas. Judas was a false disciple. He was a thief. He was a greedy man. He was out for one person, Judas. And all he saw in the pouring out of the sacrifice that Mary made, all he saw was a waste Why in the world would you waste that here? Martha showed selfless service. Lazarus showed selfless fellowship. Mary 
shows selfless sacrifice. But Judas, simply self-serving, self-loving, unwilling to sacrifice anything. Why? Because to the heart that has never been transformed by Jesus Christ, to the heart that does not believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then the worship of Christ, it's not only impractical, it is most of all just simply a waste of time. I don't even want to be bothered with it. Jesus says, listen, leave her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you. You won't always have me. You see, what Mary did, the sacrifice that was made was because of Christ's sacrifice. Mary understood who Jesus Christ was. Martha understood who Jesus Christ was. Lazarus understood who Jesus Christ was. And so they were willing to sacrifice, willing to give, willing to worship. Without the death of Christ, it really doesn't matter what we do. All of our good deeds, all of our things to help other people, all of our things that we might consider to be charitable activity does nothing before God. That's the reality. Without Jesus Christ, it's nothing. It's zero. doesn't matter how your heart may feel. doesn't matter how we may tap ourselves on the back and say, man, look, I'm such a good person. I heard someone the other day, I heard a news report of someone who gave a billion dollars to the abortion industry as a charitable contribution. Really? You're going to make yourself feel good by donating to give to murder people? How ironic. All those good deeds mean nothing before God. It's only through the death of Christ that any service that we do propels us to love others beyond ourselves because we love Christ more than anything. No Christian would ever do that. No Christian would ever support that. No Christian would ever give to that. So beloved, our greatest testimony is not what we do for Jesus. The greatest testimony of our life is what Jesus has done for us that propels us to worship Him through fellowship and through service, and through sacrifice. That's our greatest testimony. So this really is a picture of what happens when Christ changes a life. That's really what is going on here. Remember previously, do you believe this? Jesus said. Well, here's the picture as to those who believed it and those who did not. And it was infectious. The multitude who knew Jesus was there, they came, not just for Jesus only, but they wanted to see Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. They were curious. They were curious followers. Hey, let's go see this guy. Things happened when they saw Lazarus, when they heard Jesus. The chief priests wanted to kill Lazarus. But many Jews were believing in Jesus. All but Judas, 
gave their best to Christ in this little scenario. All of them used what God had given them in order to worship Christ, what He had given them. And many saw Christ through it. Beloved, I I pray, I pray that when all of us are off the scene, that would be the memory of us. But listen, they were Christians to the genuineness of their heart because they valued Christ more than anything. And they served even to the detriment of themselves simply because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the testimony of Your Word. So much more could be said this morning from this text, Lord, about who You are, the reality of the gift that You will bring through the death on the cross and all that You have accomplished for sinners like us. And We can sit here and we can evaluate our life and we can see so many ways in which we have not worshipped You as You deserve. And And Lord, our evaluation here is not so much that we might appease our own hearts, but that we might look to Your Word and allow You to divide down to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. For You know who is truly Yours. We just want to serve You as You have called us to. to Let our lives be that living sacrifice, that reasonable service of worship. Because you are the resurrection and the life. We, we believe it. Lord, help us live it. Help this church be that. Not for our personal glory, not for our personal edification, whereby we are built up because others think we're great. No. Just simply so that we can point to you. Say, we are nothing. You are everything. You receive all the glory. We receive none. We're thankful. All because of our Savior who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.